episode of Top 5, a show where we count things down, or at least we try to. Maybe we have to roll those boulders up the hill, and once it gets up to the top, it rolls back down again. That's kind of how Top 5 works. It's a bunch bunch of up and downs. And this week, thank you, listener, I guess. I don't know. This was sent in by one of our listeners. Top five hardest things you've ever had uh, ever had to do or you've ever done. And this, I got to tell you, is a pretty hard, hard list for me. Uh, my number five this week is this list. <laughs> uh, there's still, we may not even get through the entire show and I may only have four instead of five. I'm still trying to think of the other one. But this list I thought was very hard. It was very difficult to come up with this, this topic this week. It is extremely difficult. I mean, it can be depressing, I suppose. But I think, I think, here's the thing. If if we have to do hard things, Mm -hmm. hard things make us better in the end. They may not seem like it at the time, but I think doing something challenging, doing something hard, and most importantly, even if that hard thing leads to failure, then that's good in the long run. Because we, we do become, we, I don't want to say stronger on the other side, but we come out changed on the other side. Yeah. Katy Perry and or Taylor Swift say whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I don't think they say that. They do. It's just, I think they say boys just want to have fun and, um, uptown. Okay. Girls. That's just, that's Cindy Lauper. And you're still stuck in the year 1983. Ah, there's my number. Th- there's my number three. Still Cindy Lauper in 1983. Moving, moving past 1983. Moving past that 1983. All right. Uh, Rodrigo, what do you have for your number five? Uh, my number five is uh, cutting back on fatty stuff. Um, mm. I had a, a gallbladder issue. Um, and uh, I, I basically can't eat as much fat as I could before. And it's my number five because it was difficult, but not that difficult because there are strong and quick like repercussions to me eating something that's too fatty. Mm-hmm. So it's not that hard because, you know, people say that, uh, you know, when when people have a heart attack, they go for a while without, um, you know, sticking to a diet and exercising and stuff. And slowly they go back to the way things were before. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, with this problem that I have, there's no going back. Like my, my, my body just can't handle uh, fats that well. So if I eat something that's too fatty, I feel terrible pretty much I, and, and pretty much immediately. So it's difficult because I had to change the way I eat, but it's not that difficult because it's, uh, you know, the, the consequences are very immediate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally understand that. Yeah. Matthew, what do you have for number five? I want to, first of all, apologize to all the faithful spoilerites out there because um, this is going to be really depressing. Because I didn't realize until I started looking at this list, when you say to me, what's the hardest thing you've ever had to do? I'm like, man, that gets kind of existential. That gets kind of deep. And I've I've been through some, some S, you guys. But my number five, one of the hardest things I ever had to do was five years ago this summer. Uh, I was working in a call center. It was a terrible job. Just a terrible job. I don't recommend it. Uh, especially if you work for a company that rhymes with duplorica. 
But I had a new manager, and people told me that this manager was a jerk. And what he would do is he would put all of his employees on final written warnings. And usually, to get a final written warning, you will have to get one month a warning, another month a written warning, the third month a final written warning. He decided he was going to give me a final in the space of three days. So I went from a written on Monday to a final written run on Thursday. And then somehow I ended up having a meeting that went four hours. So then this meeting was about how I wasn't using my time well. None of us were using our time well. Four hours in a meeting to tell us we weren't using our time well. And that meeting went, you need to go and coach your people. Coach, coach, coach. Don't stop coaching. Always coach. We walked out of that meeting into a two-hour meeting with someone else. And these two people speaking were of equal footing in terms of the organization. These were both people you had to listen to. And that meeting was, you're not using your time well. Don't coach anybody. Don't pull anybody off the phones for any reason. We need to get through this month with no coaching if possible. So six of the eight hours of my day were shot. And I walked out of there that night and I was extremely frustrated. I went home and I started writing my report to my boss about how I felt. And it kept turning into a resignation letter. So I decided to go with that. And the next day I put on a tie and I got a haircut because it was time to resign. And it was time for me to be serious because You know, serious people in movies always get important haircuts. It's like the law. And I walked in and I sat down and I told them, look, I've been trying to write this report for you and it keeps turning into a resignation letter. So I'm going to go with that. And I quit. And literally at that point, I walked out and I said to myself, I have just deprived my family of 50% of our income. But my God, I feel so much better. My blood pressure five years later is like 20 points lower at one point they were medicating me for my blood pressure and it was a terrible decision and it led to some short-term hardship and some annoyance but in the long run it was the right move but it was incredibly hard to go in there with a kid and a wife and you know car notes and everything and just go i can't stay here and be a part of your frippery i i can't sanction your buffoonery any longer people who work at Alorica, I mean, Duplorica. And so I walked out and it's one of the hardest thing I've ever had to do, but it was excellent. And it was a good decision. And it was a leap of faith that I took. And I, I'm glad I took it. And that's my number five. All right. Uh, my number four, uh, you don't think, I mean, cause this is something that a lot of people do, right? But you don't think that this is going to be one of the hardest things you'll ever have to do until it, it comes upon you. And that is being a first time parent. Because you don't know what's going to do. Is the kid breathing right? I mean, I remember when my oldest son was born, like multiple times at night, I would get up and just go over to where he was sleeping and put my hand on his chest to just make sure that he's still breathing. Right. Uh, Or, you know, when is this kid going to get sick? Every time the phone rang for like the first year, it was like, oh, is this daycare? Something horrible happened. I've never had. Uh, uh, more horrible dreams than when my kid was in his first year as a first time parent, because you just imagine all the worst things are going to happen. And you feel at times. So is this the same thing that happens to everyone else? I mean, I joke about it now about, you know, day glow green poop and, uh, you know, bloody noses left and right that are just, you know, natural parts of kids growing up. But if you are a first time parent and these things happen to you, 
you freak out and you get, you know, pretty, pretty upset about stuff. Uh, you know, the first time when he was walking and he uh, fell down and knocked his head. Oh, my goodness. We, you know, oh. freak out. Uh, so I think uh, one of the hardest things that I've ever done or that you've ever done is being a first time parent. Now, some of you may be older, like, uh, you know, Zach, uh, he grew up in a household where he had, you know, he's 18 year old, years old and has a, a two year old brother. Right. Uh, so maybe when he becomes a parent, uh, the transition will be easier for him because he was around all of that stuff. But I think for many of us, the first time that little thing comes out and they give it to you and you're just like, oh, my God, am I going to drop it? Am I going to shatter it? What's going to happen? And you're like moving in slow motion every time you're around this kid because you don't want to you don't want to ruin it. It's already out of its original packaging. So it's already been devalued 50 percent. Uh, you know, I think that I think that's hard. And so being a first time parent um, is uh, is my number four. Uh, Rodrigo, what do you have for number four? What do I have for number four? My number four uh, was not a, uh, a a kind of a decision. It was kind of like an, an ongoing thing that I had to do for a while. I mean, I guess I did make the decision. But um, my number four was working at a thrift store, which seems like it would be a cool job. Uh, and it was in a lot of ways, but, um, I was working on the donation side and our particular store, I worked for a chain, uh, thrift store. Um, and our particular store had the highest amount or maybe the second highest amount of furniture donated of any, any store for this chain in the country um so we would get i don't know three or four couches a couple armoires like tons of chairs tons of like patio furniture um just like literally tons and tons of furniture every day and i had to offload it off of pickup trucks and, or whatever they brought it in like it's like you would hope that they it would come in a u-haul or a pickup truck as opposed to you know somebody's sedan that i would have to like um uh like reverse jenga it out you know <laughs> i guess no that because it's forward jenga too because you take pieces out Agnedge, um, if and, you will. Yeah, and and hope that the sedan wouldn't fall apart in the process or the piece, because once if the piece was damaged enough, then we can sell it. So all that was for nothing. Um, it was really rough work. It is the most physical job I've ever had, like the most physically demanding job I've ever had. And I used to have a job where I would like take shots out of airplanes or like literally one time somebody was like grabbing me by the belt while I was shooting down into like a, a feed processor um, uh, with, with a camera. Um, uh, I, I forget that I have to <laughs> specify that sometimes. Um, <laughs> I, w I wasn't shooting at people out of airplanes uh, with a gun. It was a camera. As far um, as we know. And this job like really changed me physically, not just uh, because I lost a ton of weight, uh, which, you know, you might see as one of the perks. But I was like really kind of weirdly angry all the time while I was at this job. And I think it was partially because it was so exhausting and demanding all the time. But I think actually like weirdly the like sustained exercise 
like kind of like weirdly like threw off my testosterone levels um so you just just like imagine me with even more hair and like tusks um that's that's kind of how it felt (laughs) um uh, so yeah, so I did that for a year, and it was rough. It was rough going, and I know that there's tougher jobs out there, um, and I know that there's more physical jobs out there, but uh, kind of the combination of like not a lot of support from the management and, and corporate, um, and having to do this constantly, and we were always on staff, just kind of like made for a very difficult year for me. All right. Matthew, what do you have for number three? I'm or so, so sorry. Four, I'm sorry. Guys. Four is my I'm rent. so sorry because my number four is a terrible, terrible, terrible story. And I, I feel bad for sharing it. But sometimes when you get the top five and they're like, hey, this is a top five. And I'm like, well, I can't lie. So my number four takes place around 1983, 84. I know I could drive. So I was at least 14. Um But a few years before, my grandfather had passed away. My grandfather had a hunting dog. He was this really, really cool, long-haired Irish Spaniel something, English setter Spaniel. Um, But his name was Duke. And whenever he would get upset, he would literally climb up the fence, slide down the other side out of his collar, and run across town and lay down next to where my grandfather's truck was parked. My grandma still owned the house. The truck was still there. There was just nothing going on. You could always find this dog lying next to the truck as though waiting for my late grandfather to return. That's sweet and depressing all at once. Then came the morning that I got a phone call, and the phone call said, hey, I think we found your dog. Um, it was very, very cold. It was frozen solid. And the reason that I know that it was frozen solid is because when I found my dog, he was frozen solid by the side of the road. And I said to myself, I'm going to have to go over there. I'm going to have to pick him up and I'm going to have to put him in the truck and I'm going to have to take him somewhere. And then I said, I don't want to do any of this. I don't want any part of any of this. And 13, 14 years old, you're not good at making decisions. But this may be the first adult decision of my life because it really came down to a, this is something you have to do. This is, this is yours to do. That, that inner John Wayne voice or whatever it is that just says, it's now time to go off and be a man and get a job with a drill, whatever that is, that kicked in. And I realized... I had to go. I have to take care of my dog. So I had to go. I had to pick up my dog and I had to put him in the truck and I had to take him somewhere. And to this day, it's just one of the most vivid and kind of awful memories of my youth. Uh, And, you know, if you've ever heard me talk about comics, you know, I remember a lot of things and a lot of those things are kind of dumb and minor and then you go oh yeah on page eight this happened but that sometimes happens in real life too and i remember that morning like it was yesterday and it was at least 30 years ago i want to say maybe 30 31 so when i told you this was going to be super depressing episode you guys bear in mind this is my number four it's all uphill from here so my number four 
was the day that I had to go take care of my dog. All right. Uh, my number three happened a couple of years ago. Um, so as a kid growing up, uh, my parents never went to any of my sporting events. I'm not really sure why. They said that they were always too busy, I think is what the thing was, working and all that other stuff. They never went into any of my sporting events, never went to any of the travel things. So as my oldest son shows interest in sports, and then, you know, I've got two kids. Youngest could give two craps about sports. Okay. Uh, but we'll support him, you know, in whatever endeavor that he wants to do. So uh, when my son started playing soccer at the young age of uh, five, uh, I, you know, we want to be there every time. We want to yell and cheer for him and all those good things. And so uh, last year uh, we started traveling soccer. So we go for like several weekends in the fall and the spring. We go all over the uh, the, the state and into other states and stuff to have him participate in much better competition than what he would get locally. And as a parent, I want to yell and, and cheer my son on and yeah, good job, way to go, ah, you know, the, the things that you want to do. Um, but after the second tournament, or going into the second tournament of last year, and I got to give my son uh, a lot of credit because he go because he you know spoke up about it. But he's like, Dad, I really wish that you wouldn't yell and cheer at my games. And I was like, Why not? And he said, because it embarrasses me and distracts me. Uh-huh. And I'm like, okay, I can totally understand that because I can get a little boisterous and I can get a little angry, especially when, you know, refs are not uh, calling some of the bad calls that happen when, uh, you know, when kids are, are pushing and shoving and punching and kicking. Uh, and, you know, so I can totally understand that. So the hardest thing that I've had to do in the last six months is shutting up at my son's soccer games because I so much want to yell and cheer for him. But I know that he doesn't want me. He doesn't want that. And other parents are yelling and cheering for their kids, but um, he just thinks that it's, it embarrasses him and makes him uncomfortable to know that his dad's, you know, not, I'm not making an ass of myself, but to hear me yelling and screaming uh, on the sidelines. So that's really tough because part of me wants to have, you know, wants him to have those good experiences, but also not uh, hurt his feelings uh, but as I said at the beginning of the show, sometimes out of bad things comes good things. And if you ever want to have a transcendent transcendence experience, an experience <laughs> so transcending, pop on some classical music while you are watching, you know, live sports and turn it up so loud that you can't hear anything else. And it is the most wonderful thing you will ever experience. So while my number three is shutting up at my son's soccer game is one of the hardest things that I've had to do. There is this whole other thing that has come about, uh, about this to where it's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, because it somehow I become hyper-focused on everything that's going on and the music makes it, it makes watching that game a better experience than yelling and screaming and, and cheering my son on. So, um, some good things can, can come out of bad. And, uh, that is my number three, Rodrigo, what do you have for your number three? You know, Schleicher, I, you're raising a good <laughs> kid. And I think that because of that, uh, some one day he's going to apologize to you for that. Like, no, because, I, you know, I told him, I said, look, I totally understand why this is, but you, and you know, we had a big long talk about, you know, I, I will not do this now, but realize that, you know, I'm over there cheering for you regardless and that I love you no matter what. 
And, um, you know, if and he wants to be a professional soccer player and if someday he, you know, miraculously gets into a pro soccer club, I told him <laughs> I will be there at every game cheering him on just like the tens of thousands of other people in the stadium doing the exact same thing. Yeah, um, seriously, it's that's that's my prediction. Well, 20 years from now, we'll see. Yeah. I anyway, right. let's talk about me. Um, it's, it's interesting that, uh, Matthew talked about like that moment when you is becomes a man, Mm -hmm. um, because to me, that moment was my number three in a way, sort of financially. Um, and that was having to buy a car for the first Mm. time. Uh, my first car that I actually bought with my own money, which I still own, um, that was the Yaris. I, it was difficult. It was a mindset that I didn't have at the time. This idea that, I mean, I was in debt from being in college. I was in debt from, uh, no, being in college. I was in so much debt from being in college. Um, <laughs> but I, I didn't really make the choice to go to college. Um, I kind of did, but it was never an actual choice. My parents were always like, you're going to college. Um, I was always like, I'm going to college. And everyone at school was always like, you should go to college. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to college. So that was always something that was going to happen. But, um, I actually had to like, I mean, I, I picked which college I went to, but even then that kind of wasn't really a choice. Um, but for my car, I did, I had to sit down and figure out which car I wanted and it was kind of this very grown-up moment for two reasons. One, I had to take this like financial responsibility uh, to basically say, I'm going to be paying this money for from here on out until forever. Um, and also, it was a moment where I was like, well, um, I'm going to need a little help from my friends. So... Uh, my family helped me out a lot, not financially, um, but they were like, okay, well, let's try and pick a car that is going to be good. You know, my brother was on the phone with me and he was like, don't take that offer that they can do better kind of stuff. And uh, of course, I've I've told this story before in other shows, but uh, uh, Alex, uh, our rules guy from Critical Hit uh, from back in the day, um, he kind of saved the day because uh i was going to go buy a car and he called me and he's like hey what are you doing i'm like i'm buying a car what are you doing he's like nothing i'm like you want to come along with me and buy a car and he's like yeah so uh we're sitting there and i'm trying to turn to trade in my saturn and i'm trying to trade in my saturn because it's dying like that car has an expiration date um it's not going to make it very long and it's literally cheaper to buy a new car than to get it fixed Um, so we're driving around and I'm like, I hope this car doesn't do anything bad. And the car starts doing something bad. And the, the guy from the dealership is like, Hey, when I turn this car, does it, is it, does it sound like it's making a weird noise? And I'm like, (laughs) what a funny thing for you to say. (laughs) Um, and, uh, so he's like, no, listen. And he basically just turns the wheel all the way around. We're like out in the boonies. So this is happening in Kansas. So the boonies is like literally one street over from the the city that I was buying this car in. Um, and so he starts just going around in circles 
And he's like, do you, do you guys hear that? And Alex is like, uh, I think I'm going to be sick. So the guy's like, oh, 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 sorry. And he just like stops. We keep driving. The noise doesn't come back. And I am like, Alex, that was a genius move. You are the smartest man alive. And he's like, actually, I was actually sick. Uh, <laughs> and that's and that's the story of how Alex added like 150 bucks to my trade in. Um, nice. But also the story of how I was like, OK, well, I guess I have to start doing adult things now, like, you know, buying cars and figuring out what a mortgage is, I guess. And then I was like, oh, thank God, I have to own a house first before I have to, before I have to worry about a mortgage. Yeah. A mortgage is what you use to gauge your morts. Yep. The higher your mort is, the more gauge you get. Oh. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Matthew, what do you have for number three? Guys, I'm so sorry. Uh, you're out there listening, and you just, you just don't know. I'm so sorry. This is so depressing. Um, so it's the year 2006. I am 36 years old. I feel like I'm a, a rational adult human being. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm solidly together in all of this stuff that I do. And so then I have a kid. And as Steven said, having a kid is really, really tough. I didn't personally have the kid. I guess that is a misnomer. My wife had the kid. Um, I, I was there present for it and I was like, okay, fine. And this kid starts growing up into a person. Well, I was, I mean, I just stood there for eight hours. She did all the work. Everybody was like, oh my gosh, can we help you? And she's like, leave me alone or I will destroy you. And I'm just like, yeah, eh, she will. Um, but we have this kid and she starts to turn into a little person and she starts to, you know, do little person things. And she starts to get up in the middle of the night and say, I need a glass of water. And then she starts to get up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom. And then she starts to do that three and four times a night. And then finally she's doing that seven, eight times a night. And I said, well, there's a chance that this little person has a little bladder infection. So we went to the walk-in clinic, the express care facility here in town. And we sat down and we did the thing and they, they took some tests and they took a little bit of blood and she was very brave and she didn't cry. And the nurse walked in. And as a grown-up, uh, one of the things that I have learned to do is gauge the facial expressions of other adult human beings. And by this point in time, my job was to make sure that if I'm gauging those expressions as something bad, that the child does not freak out. The nurse walked in with a face that I can only describe as, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so far out of my depth, what do I do? And the nurse says, we're going to send you to the emergency room now. And she was, you know, okay, fine. So we go to the emergency room. And in the emergency room, they immediately start breaking out a bunch of stuff and a bunch of needles. And they're, they're like putting two IVs in my child. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to need a little bit more information at this point. And the doctor says to me, your daughter's blood sugar is 600. And I'm like, is, is that bad? And he's like, oh, that's about 10 times what it should be. And I'm like, oh, well, that's a thing. And as they're putting in the IV, my, my brave little daughter is crying. And she's like, what is this for? And I try to explain to her that an IV, you know, means that you may not have to get as many shots. And the nurse is like, no, don't tell her that. Because they knew what I didn't know. And we spent the next three days in the uh, 
pediatric ward getting used to the revelation that my daughter had type 1 diabetes and was going to have to deal with needles pretty much every day forever. And when you have that little person and you build that little person and you're like, okay, this is that little person that I built and something is wrong. And what did I do wrong? And oh my God, how are we going to have a furbola bubble blah, 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 blah. I told you this was depressing. I'm so sorry, you guys. It gets worse from here. But as we sat there and we dealt with this and she came to terms with this and, you know, she was like, I just want to go home. I want to go home. I'm like, well, we have to, we have to deal with some stuff. She's like, no, no more needles. I want to go home. I'm like when we go home, there's going to be more needles. She's like, fine needles, but I want to go home. So we get her home and years later, we joke, we joke about this. She and I have a running gag where we'll go to the store and she'll say, can I have this sugary thing? And I'll say, nope. She's like, you're mean. And I'm like, well, you shouldn't have broken your pancreas. And other people hear this and they go, oh, you're a terrible father. And that's true, but not for the reason they think. But in the year 2010, when that's happening, Ooh, it was one of the hardest things I have ever had to deal with because, you know, when you say things like chronic disease and lifetime management and all of these things that I'm thinking, I'm like, not just thinking, how are we going to do this? What are we going to balance? Balancing, you know, my relationship with food is complicated already because you know, I'm enormously fat and I'm dealing with all this. And now we have to work all of that together. And oh my God, there's going to be insurance. And how are we going to pay for all this? And it's just a potential. And then, of course, there's also this little person who's just like, hey, let's read some comic books. And I'm like, well, how do I keep this little person from not being, you know, completely destroyed by this whole mess, too? So. Oh, my God, that weekend is just one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through. And on the other side of it, looking back, it's easy to go, oh, ha, ha. It wasn't, you know, all the terrible things it could have been. But it was it was a pretty terrible thing, y'all. <laughs> and even now, even when we joke about it, there's these moments where you're just like, what's your blood sugar? 550 what? And that all comes back and it's all right there in the front of your head. And you're just like, oh, my God. And that, my friends, is why I've apologized 10 times. I'm going to keep apologizing for the rest of the show because my number three is that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my number two. And this is true. Doesn't matter what job I've ever ha had. When I have to go in and quit that job. I, mm. it is the hardest thing to do to quit a job. I know Matthew talked about it earlier, but for me, it's like every job that I have quit. I, I just, it's so hard for me because it's like, uh, when I quit jobs, it's not because I, uh, and, and unhappy, uh, you know, usually it's life change things. I've got to move. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. Um, but man, I get in there and start talking to my boss about it and I get pretty emotional about quitting a job because part of it for me is I've not that, um, that I'm, um, that I'm doing something bad, but I feel like I have been, I'm letting the company, whatever that group organization, whoever that I'm working for down. And, uh, so quitting jobs for me is super, super, super hard, uh, just because of that feeling of, Oh, I'm letting you down instead of, Hey, I'm going off to do something really cool. Uh, but, uh, but I feel bad about quitting jobs. I really, really do. Uh, so that is my number two quitting jobs. Doesn't matter what job mm -hmm. it is. If I quit a job, 
it's a it's really tough. Uh, the last job that I quit, it took me six months to finally work up to going in and, and walking away from that place. So mm. there you go. Rodrigo, what do you have for number two? Uh, my number two is weird because it is kind of sometimes it feels like a fact of life. Um but it's also uh, uh, kind of a big source of anxiety for me. And uh, it kind of comes from uh, the fact that um, when I was a kid and I was actually getting ready to go off to college, uh, I was sort of sold this bill that um, I was going to go to college and then I was going to like land a job uh, in my field. And then after a couple years, I was going to move on to like a bigger, better one, and then a better one, and then a better one. And, uh, from there on out, it was just going to be, I don't know, champagne and Corvettes or something. (laughs) Um, and so I got a job after college and after two years, I was like, okay, well, it's time for me to move on to that other job. And, uh, it just kind of never happened in the way that it was quote unquote supposed to. Right. And it actually took me a long time to figure out that like that there are no guarantees in life. I I got out of school right in front of like the biggest depression in American history since the one that they call the biggest depression in American history. Right. Um, So it like there were no jobs Mm -hmm. um, and there was none of this other stuff. But I have. I really kind of to this day kept up that job search. I've been looking for another job. Even when I left that job and got another job, I'm always kind of like programmed to be looking for jobs. It takes a lot out of me to look for jobs and it takes a lot out of me to stop looking for jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, So keeping up that job search is just something that's always kind of in the back of my head. And I've been doing it. And today, randomly, like a bunch of emails, you know, like I get all these things from like career builder and stuff. And it's like, hey, there's a job. And I'm like clicking it up and I'm like, oh, this is a job I could actually apply for. I got a job right now. Should I apply for this job? Am I on the right career path? What should I do? Like it's it's something that is always kind of going on. Uh, so, yeah, keeping up the job search, it's a hard thing to do. And it's something that's always there. And I'm kind of always doing it. All right. Uh, Matthew, what do you have for your number two? Mm, I'm so sorry, you guys. I'm just so sorry. So we, we talked about, you know, having that little person that I built. Before I had that little person that we built, I had to pick another person to build that little person with. You know how you go around and you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, you go to the uh, 7-Eleven right there on right, well, 7. You go, you, you date the weird alternate chick and – you know, you, you date the pretty little girl who says she's a witch and you date the Asian girl a few years older, because if you're going to go off to college, why not be a total cliche? I mean, you do all the things that you're going to do. And eventually, you know, you, you meet a girl, you go to worlds of fun with a girl, you end up marrying the girl and then the girls, you know, starts having the health things and you're like, okay, well, you know, we're, we're good. We're going we're gonna to do this health thing. It's going to be fine. And you go to the doctor, and the doctor's a douchebag for like five years, doesn't know what's going on. You go to another doctor, and that doctor puts before you the Sophie's Choice, the riddle of the Sphinx, the, the probably the worst 
thing that I've ever considered in my life. And bear in mind that mere moments ago, we were joking about my daughter's chronic disease. And here is the conundrum handed to me by the endocrinologist. He says to us, if you have to root for one of the cancers, you want to root for the thyroid cancer because it's easier to specifically target. And so we didn't know whether we were dealing with a thyroid cancer or a much more difficult kind of, uh, I can't remember what it's called now, lymphoma is the word, until we went in and, you know, we had to have the little, they were going to go in and do what's called the biopsy, where they take out a little bit of tissue and they see if it's cancerous. So they go in and the doctor said it could be anywhere from about an hour and a half to four hours. And I said to myself, okay, well, an hour and a half might be good it might not four hours is probably better because the longer they're in there the more chance there is that they know what's going on and we know which cancer we're dealing with because you know we're at this point we're rooting for the thyroid cancer which is the most terrible thing i've ever had to say and i i don't say that lightly and please please understand that i'm not joking when i say this i'm, I'm not trying to be flippant i'm not trying to be disrespectful but five and six hours passed and finally they come out and the guy's like, okay, all of this happened and all of this happened. And instead of doing, you know, the biopsy and the excision, we went ahead and took out her whole thyroid and a whole bunch of lymph nodes and some other stuff. And I'm like, okay, that's good, right? And he's like, well, it's good in as much as we know what we're dealing with. We know that it is the cancer that we were rooting for, the one that's highly treatable and has the high curative rate. And I'm like, okay, that's a good thing. That's a better thing. And so after that, we had uh, what's called an ablation. We had another surgery. We had another couple of ablations. And we've gone through just a lot of things to balance not having a thyroid for my wife. Because when you don't have a thyroid, all the stuff that the thyroid does still has to be manipulated somehow. So you have to actually take medication that replicates the hormones that come out of the thyroid. And that doesn't happen immediately. You got to build that medication up in your system and then you got to balance it. And then you got to jump around and uh, put one foot in and one foot out. And then you're doing the hokey pokey. But um, I think it was 10 years. I want to say 10 years ago. We got the clean bill of no cancer wife. They're like, no, yeah, it was 10 years ago because we had just had a kid the last time they went through and they were doing all the stuff. But it was just the most terrible thing because when they said they were looking at these possible words that end in OMA, I'm just like, oh, my God. You know, I, I don't know what this is other than, you know, what I've seen on like the love boat. You, you feel like you interact with and you understand these concepts, but what it really comes down to is when your wife is sick, it's like, what? I, I had it. Just one of the single hardest things I've ever had to, to deal with, had to experience. Incredibly depressing, you guys. I'm so sorry. That's, that's 15 or 16 now. But also... As with my number three, once you're on the other side of it, it's easy to kind of look back and go, that was a trial and all of these things happened. And now when you bounce a check or run out of gas or do something dumb or, you know, smash a plate, you're like, I've been through so much worse than this. 
yeah, my, the truck burned down in the driveway, but I've been through so much worse than this. You know, I've only got nine toes left at this point. But again, so much worse has happened in a, in a way you don't No, you don't you're not thankful for it. You don't relish it. You don't you know, it's not a positive thing, but it's one of those things where you're like, uh, uh, what is what's the, the Buddhist philosophy? You are you are stronger now for having been corrected. Right. It's terrible that it happened. It's one of the hardest things that she or I, and she did most of the heavy lifting, I'm going to be honest, have ever had to go through. But man, that was my number two. And you guys, I'm so sorry. Okay. Um, I'm so sorry. My number one um, is, is something that, again, kind of going back to what Matthew had said earlier about losing half your income, or in our case, losing about 75% of our household income. Um, was me doing my number two in quitting my job, uh, but then making major spoilers my full-time job. Um, because suddenly you go from, you know, a six-figure income to a no-figure income, and uh, you find out very quickly over the course of three months that uh, savings that are built up uh, tend to disappear very, very quickly. And this was something that, man, it was about, a, I, I've talked about it before, but it's almost a year uh, or more before when uh, I was having a lot of issues with my with my job at the time. And my wife was like, why don't you just quit and do major spoilers full time? And I was like, I, you know, we've still got house payments and car payments and all these other things. And she's like, I think we'd be OK. And I'm like, I don't know, because, you know, we got kids and there's another kid on the way. And uh, and, you know, uh, it was just it was tough to figure out, do you follow your dream or do you uh, keep the the income coming in uh, to where you can, you know, put your kids in diapers and feed them food and those kinds of things. Uh, but finally, as many of you know, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I finally went into my boss's office and said, hey, think, you know, major spoilers as a company is at a place where I can walk away from this and I can do without uh, the money that you are sending my way. And I can, you know, and I can make ends meet and we can make this work. And my wife and I, worked very, very hard to pay our bills down to next to nothing over the course of two years. Uh, and so even though it's still a challenge every single day, um, major spoilers, being a full-time job and company is probably the hardest thing that I've had to do, not only just because of the uh, financial part, but also because you have to be that businessman. You ha you're responsible for taxes. You're responsible for, you know, promotion and you're responsible for filling out all the forms that government sends your way. And, uh, it's, it's difficult. It was something that I probably wasn't expecting. Uh, and each and every day seems like it's, it's something new and something different and something to grow and build on. Uh, but it's the, it's the most fun thing that I've ever done. It's the most fulfilling thing that I've ever done. Uh, but it is certainly the hardest thing that I've ever had to do. And that is making major spoilers, my full-time job. Rodrigo, what do you have for number one? Uh, my number one is um, something that uh, I had to do when I was a kid, and it was pretty difficult to do, and it was kind of a rough decision to make, and uh, that was like that was um, altering my accent when. I moved to the United States. I had a super thick accent, right? I mean, I, I knew how to speak English because I'd gone to a bilingual school, but I had to 
but you know, I, it just doesn't compare, right? There's no matter how immersive, you're still going to have an accent. And I landed in the uh, largest concentration of little shits uh, imaginable. <laughs> um, it was in L.A. Uh, it was not the roughest neighborhood in L.A. by far, but also not the nicest neighborhood in L.A. by far. Um and there were some pretty uh, mean kids. And for me, it really kind of became a matter of like social survival. Um, so I worked really hard to, to change my accent. And uh, people all the time, when they find out that I actually wasn't born in the United States, um, they'll comment on that. They'll be like, well, you don't have an accent. Um, how long have you been here or whatever? And I'll tell them and they're like, well, you know, even then, you know, it's surprising you speak so well. And it's like, well, yeah, I worked at it. I got really tired of being picked on for my accent. So I like what you hear now, the way that you hear me talk is like manufactured. I like, I made it up. I made up this accent. Um, mm -hmm. I've picked up and, and everybody kind of does that. You always pick up stuff along the way. Um, you know, there's, I, I definitely cut out a lot more G's, uh, from the end of words after living in Kansas for 10 years. Um, what, what are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so there's that, but you know, it, it was, it was weird to be 11 years old and have to make this decision of like, I have to change the way that I like communicate with people like fundamentally at a basic level i have to learn how americans talk i have to learn how they form their words and i have to sound like that otherwise people are going to keep picking on me for the rest of my life right um and so yeah so i was like basically i was like how do i sound like a white person on tv and that's kind of why i sound like a white person on tv um with you know a few remnants here and there some uh purposeful and some accidental that can't be helped, right? If, you, if you've talked to me long enough or if you've heard these shows long enough and you've heard me talk, you've probably caught it. Um, there are things that are very difficult for me to say. Um, and there are moments when like my accent comes out. Um, and it used to be that I was very self-conscious about that stuff. Now I don't care anymore. Uh, but... Yeah, anytime that like my accent would slip, I used to get like really mortified, and that was rough in and of itself too. And coming to that kind of acceptance of it and saying like, well, it's not gonna go away, and it shouldn't go away, um, has been kind of a journey in and of itself. All right, good, uh, Matthew. What do you have for your number one? I'm so sorry, you guys. I had to go last. So, I, honestly, I think. If you've listened to me talk over the years, you probably know where this is going. I think, you know, we've, we've, we've touched on this once or twice before, and it's been the most depressing episodes of Top 5, so I'm not going to be depressing this time. But I clearly remember uh, about 11 years ago now, 11 years ago this August, I got a phone call from my baby sister, who's the, you know, the good sister, the one that I still talk to of, of my own volition. Uh, if you're listening and you're one of my other sisters, <laughs> sorry, guys. Um, but 
my baby sister was like, okay, mom's in the hospital. She had a thing. And I'm like, okay, she had a thing. Is she all right? And I had to make a decision at that moment because I didn't have any money to speak of. I did not have a reliable vehicle to get me the 250 miles to where this hospital would have been. And she said, she seems to be okay. She seems to be fine. She seems to be recovering. And I said, okay, I'll wait to the weekend and we'll figure out a way to get down there. Now, this was a Tuesday. And on Thursday night, I got another call from my sister. And it was impossible to understand what my sister was saying because my sister was pretty much gone. She was entirely in tears. And basically what she was saying was that we no longer had a mother. And I literally remember I was at at the time, my laundry room was also my kitchen. And I had this habit because we had a landline phone with an actual cord, which will tell you how long ago this was. I would just sit and lean on the top of the washer because it was right at that right level where it wasn't quite a chair, but you could lean on it like when you're in an elevator and there's that bar just right at hip level. But I was leaning on the washer dryer and, and, you know, Kara's crying and she, you know, she says the word that I knew was coming. I knew it was coming and I didn't want to hear it. And she said that word. And I remember falling on my kitchen floor and I don't fall very often uh, because I'm, I'm really heavy. And often when I fall, it hurts, you know, that's true of anyone, but it's, it's especially, you know, pyroclastic when you're over 300 pounds. And I remember falling on that floor and I remember being on that floor. And I remember talking to my sister being on that floor and crying for some time. I have literally no idea how long it was. And I have literally no idea you know, what happened next. I know that I went to work the next day and I got time off and I know that we got a vehicle together and I know that several of my friends came to support me and we all, you know, took the vehicle up and I clearly remember being okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. And we walked in and it was the town that I grew up in. And it was the only funeral home in the town that I grew up in. And it's this little tiny town So the people that work there are people that I went to high school with, people that you knew growing up, and I'm fine, and I'm fine, and I walk in the door, and I see my family, my sisters, and my grandmother, and I'm fine, and we go down, and we walk in, and at the end of the row is my mom, and I'm not fine anymore, and I just about fell down again, and my wife caught me and kept me from falling down again and put me in a chair. But I thought I knew what was difficult as I went in there. And I thought that I could handle this. And literally walking down that aisle was the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. The most difficult thing I ever hoped to have to do because it was just horrific because that was clearly my mother. I mean, that, that was Davida, that was her and that was it and just terrible. So when you get done with this podcast, I'm so sorry, you guys hug your, hug your friends, kiss your wife, kiss your boyfriend, go and hug your children and, and tell the people that you love that you love them. Because that decision that I made on Tuesday night, when I said I can wait for the weekend, cause I couldn't really afford the time off work was a dumb decision. 
And it's a decision that I regret now. And, you know, if I had it to do over again, obviously, you know, I'd do it differently. You always say you'll do it differently. You'll do things right. But just walking down that aisle and wishing that four days ago I had gotten in the car and gone and talked to her and seen her just made it one of the worst experiences of my life. And so that's my number one. And I'm real sorry, you guys. Well, there you go, listeners. You're sorry. The ones, this is suggested by one of our listeners. Thank you. you know, <laughs> see, the people see what you who get. listen to top five to, to get into our hearts and know what we're really about just had an episode that's a really solid, this is what we're all about, you guys. This is this is where Major Spoilers is at. This is where the top five team lives. And now you know a little bit about the, the secrets of the us's well, think, and the things. I think every week uh, people learn a little bit more about us. Uh, and we like learning a little bit. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be. But like I said at the beginning of the show, even through hardships, even through all these things that have happened, as hard as they are, um, coming out the other side, you are better for it. You are changed. Um, you have done something that makes you different. Uh, you're not the same you. You're not the the you stuck in 1983 or whatever you guys were saying earlier. Uh, you know, we all do hard things in our lives. And everybody's uh, experiences are a little bit different. But if you would like to head over to Majorspoilers.com and you would like to share your top five hardest things you've ever done, uh, we would certainly like to read them. Everybody, of course, loves a list. Uh, but we know that uh, sometimes talking about things that are hard uh, are, is also very hard. Uh, but And we appreciate those of you who wish to share. Uh, and until next time, take care. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.